few months ago or even longer back, I uh, had begun to speak with a friend about kind of some of the things that he got to do during his uh, schooling. And one of the things he wound up doing was he was busy in a group that um, basically helped out young men who stood in front of a judge after they had just been arrested or about to be put into prison or just taken out of prison and basically told, hey, listen, you can go back to prison or you can go on into this group and they can help walk you through how you're going to really live life in a new way. And what was amazing to me is as he talked about a very, uh, there was a lot of kids who would come out and they would look at this situation and say, you know what? Uh, um, I'd rather go back to prison. I know what that's like. I know what that. I know that's my destiny anyway. Uh, thanks, but no thanks. Others would enter into this program and struggle through trying to figure out how they could have a different life because all they had known were the gangs. All they had known was the abuse or neglect or various things in their lives. And, and they really were just bound up in old habits and old ways of viewing life. And the next thing they know, as they're looking at life, they're, they're, they're starting to realize there might be something more than maybe making manager at McDonald's or something like that in their life. And it began to inspire them and move forward. But really hearing that story for me was kind of a parable of what this series is about, about this idea of being pardoned. That really what a Christian is, is a Christian is somebody who gets pardoned by God for their sins, and then it's kind of the what's next is the big question. Where do we go from here? You know, can, can I just, now that I'm free and I don't have to face God anymore and Jesus has died for my sins in the past and the future, I can, I can just go and, you know, use Jesus like you get out a free card, get out of everything free card. Maybe some of you guys are, are, not, are not Christians in the room and, and you know some Christians who like to use that idea. They like to say, you know, um, I, I, I get to do whatever I want and I'm going to go to heaven because Jesus forgives me. It's a get out of get out of sin free card kind of a thing. And, and, and you go, and maybe you scratch your head and you wonder, is that right? Is that how it's supposed to work? And the answer really is no, that's not how it's supposed to work. There's, there's a radically different way a Christian is supposed to live. And really that's what we're looking at in this series, Pardon. We're looking at what that way of life is supposed to be. When you finally have that freedom, we're not supposed to run off and be like the crazy college student who runs in, and just goes nuts and, and does stuff. No, we're, we're not supposed to go into that zone but are we supposed to live all locked up in rules and law? No, not that either. And so as we begin to look at this, we start to wrestle with this question that Paul left us with. You see, at the end of last, time, last week, we, we landed on this verse. It said, For sin will not have a dominion over you, since you, have not, you are not under the law, but under grace. And what he's saying is this, since there's no danger in sin anymore, since there's no punishment coming because the law is gone, shouldn't you just go sin? I mean, you're not going to get in trouble for it. Jesus paid the price for it. Shouldn't you just go do that? And it's that question that we're going to address tonight. It's that question because the honest thing is, many of us, we've been given Christ and we've received Christ. But many of us are finding ourselves in a situation where we're in our old habits, looking to where we gained our old needs and our old desires from, and we want to go back. And it's a little nerve-wracking to move forward into this relationship with God into this forgiveness and grace. And so what are, we, what are we supposed to do about this? What could motivate us and move us forward? Let's get some clarity on this and what it means by opening our Bibles up to Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 15 through 23, and um, we're going to dive into the answer to this kind of dilemma that we're looking at. Last week we said, no, we don't sin because we're out to follow Christ now. We're out to live for God. Why would we live for sin? If that's not satisfying now, because you're free anyway, we're going to really want to talk about the warnings of why we don't want to, to, 
to make the wrong choice here. They'll either lead to being chained up or they'll lead to change. And so we want to talk about this. And Paul starts this way. He says in verse 15, What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? He says, By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And what he is basically saying is, guys, there's this choice between going towards sin or going towards God, but go towards God. You know, let God be the one who ultimately provides those needs and provides those things, not sin. You're sitting there going, where are you getting needs and all this stuff from? What, what is this all about? And why are you talking about letting God be the one that provides versus sin being the one that provides? And the answer is found right here in verse 16. If you'll, if you'll look at this carefully, you see this verse. It says, do, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're a slave of the one whom you obey? You know, there's a really difficult term in this. It's a term that us Americans, we don't like. It's kind of offensive, and it's uncomfortable. The Bible is even referencing it, and even in some manner like this. And that's the word slave. We have concepts of slavery currently that are horrendous when you deal with the sex slave trades and all this stuff that we're looking at. We're trying to fight today, even in the churches and all over. Then you can look at the aspect of the of the you know fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen hundreds, all the way up to the mid eighteen hundreds of slavery, and the way that we know it in the Western world. And that is even radically different than what we're talking about here. The ancient world understood slavery. It had slavery on all levels, but it was a little different. It was, it was a radically different form of slavery in that it was a voluntary venture as well as kind of the, the, what we know as slavery. And, and what would most likely happen is you would either be conquered and your, your town would be burned and you'd be taken into captivity as a conquered um, as a conquered army and you'd be brought in and basically made a slave so you could live and do stuff in the Roman Empire. But on the flip side of this was another set of people that found themselves in slavery out of choice. They literally signed themselves up to be a slave. And that's not because they were abused or beat. They weren't up for that. What they were signed up to be a slave, why they signed themselves up to be a slave was because they had ran out of money. They had no ability to make ends meet. They had a lot of needs that they couldn't meet. In fact, some of those needs was debt. Other of those needs was they just, they just ran out of, out of the food and out of land and everything else. They'd sold everything off until they were just them all alone trying to feed their family. And so they would go to a wealthy landowner and they would indenture themselves. They would make themselves a slave. Basically, it's a, that side is a little bit like us going to somebody and trying to get a job, being employed. And so we would employ ourselves to someone, and so you would get connected. Now notice, Paul is using this kind of slavery in this text. He's talking about the people who voluntarily enter into this kind of an arrangement. Notice how he puts it, verse 16 again. Do you not know that if you present yourself, if you volunteer yourself to anyone as an obedient slave, you're a slave to the one that you obey? And what he's saying is there's these needs in life, these things that we have, and we go and we can volunteer ourselves up. We can volunteer ourselves over to either to sin or to obedience. Sin that he says you can either be a slave of sin or you can be a slave to obedience leading to righteousness. Now there's another aspect of the slavery thing that, that I think we Americans struggle with. Can I be honest? How many of you guys really consider yourself a slave? I mean, come on. You really think something controls your life? That you don't have the free choice that you should have? I mean, we as Americans, we revel in freedom. 
We fight for freedom. We long for freedom. We make choices. We make decisions. We're not slaves of anybody. We're our own people with our own choice. In fact, our entire political system is fighting for the opportunities and the rights for everybody to have equal amounts of choices and the same kinds of choices and the same opportunities in their choices. And whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, the fight is over what kind of choices and opportunities we have. So we wind up in all of this debate about choice. And so when we hear about the ancient world talking about slavery to things, it seems strange. But it gets even stranger. You see, the ancient world had a concept of the world that we don't own. And that was that this world, when you were born, you were born under the stars. And that the stars actually set your fate. You ever heard of the term fate? It's an ancient concept that your life was set in a certain trajectory and destiny and you couldn't break it. Now they tried. They would go around and they would use magic and they would call upon the gods and they'd call upon demons to break their fate. To give them a new chance, a new destiny, a new direction. And so you have this picture of the world and where they were trying to understand the stars and understand the times and understand these things and understand the fate and try to get something to break it. And we're like, that sounds so crazy, doesn't it? Anybody else feel like that's just an odd world to live in? And yet we still have some similar things. Think about it for a minute. Our culture doesn't just simply believe in a choice and choice alone. Because when certain choices come up and we talk about certain behaviors and certain things, we say, well, I was born that way. I'm I'm born that way. It's my genetics. There's something inside of me that makes me go this direction. I can't help it. That's just who I am. That's my personality. Haven't we all used some of these excuses in some way or another at some point? And the point is simply this, that what we're just saying is, I don't know why, but I'm compelled to do this, and this is in me, so it must be my genetics. Other people say, no, it's not my genetics. I was raised this way. This is, how, this is my upbringing. It was my parents. It was my family. It was my culture. I remember there was this girl across the street from my house, and she was yelling and screaming at another little girl, and they were about to get in this fight. And I go across the street. I was, I was, I was in like my 20s, and I'm like, hey, you can't do that. Stop talking to each other like that. This is ridiculous. She looks at me. She's like, who are you to talk to me? This is the 90s. And I'm like, I live in the 90s. What, do you, what is this craziness? And what she was basically saying is, hey, get off my back. This is just how things are today. I, I, this is a product of how things are, and I'm going to do it because this is how things are. And we've used these kind of excuses all the time. I find it interesting because we as Americans, while we believe in choice, we also believe there seems to be something inside of us that compels us to these directions or something outside of us that seems to form our choices. Can I just suggest that maybe the Bible's correct then? Maybe it's not genetics. What if it is something that's more spiritual called sin? What if it is the world and sin? See, genetics is something in us. The world is something outside of us. The Bible says it's the world that's outside of us that compels us to do things, and it's the sin that is within us that drives us in a direction so that we can't help it. This is who we are. That's exactly what Paul is saying when he talks about slavery. He's saying we are slaves either to sin or we're slaves to God. We can't help it, but when it comes to sin, it's like I'm stuck on a track and I just go for it. I'm stuck in this way and I'm just headed in this direction. Or I could now go in a different direction now that I've been, now I'm a Christian. And here's the debate. People go, that's really narrow, Greg. There's not two ways, man. 
There can't be just two ways. You know, I can choose a route, and it's not just sin, and it's not just God. There are non-choice. There's me and my decisions and what I want. I can do good and these kind of things. And I get that, but I just kind of want to boil down to the fact that maybe Paul's right. The ancient church, after this text and several others throughout this Bible, came down to begin to teach discipleship by the two paths, the path of darkness and the path of life or light, depending on which one you read. And they were both talking about the fact that they would go in these two opposite opposing directions, and there were only two paths, and they would describe them. And that's really what Paul's saying here. Look, you have two masters you can choose from. There's the master of sin, who we've been stuck under and now set free from, or you can go back to the master that is, or you can go now to the master who is obedience to God. And you go, but Greg, I really don't think there's just two ways. Well, well, let's try this out for a second. Let's see maybe if Paul, let's give Paul a chance and see maybe if he's right. The author of Romans seems to indicate there's these two paths. I think what he's starting with is he starts with the big ten, the ten commandments. And at the top of the big ten, starting at number one is, and I'm just kidding, uh, sorry, that's my bad Casey Kasem impression. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Now think about this for a minute. This, this is number one. This is the top commandment of the Ten Commandments. It says, you don't have any other gods before me. That means don't put anybody or anything in priority before God. And if we're trying to say that, hey, my life and my direction can be made up by myself. I know where I'm going. I know who I am. I know what I'm doing. I'm setting my own destiny. You can be guaranteed a couple of things. I remember this. My direction, my destiny, I'm moving forward. And what I ran into is every time I matched up with God, I patted myself on the back. See, I'm a good person. I do what God does. I'm all about where God's going. God agrees with me. Do you ever think that? Feel good that you're doing good. Anytime God steps in to say, that's not a good idea, go this way, we go, hold on a second. Who are we to say this is really God? God who are you to really mess with my plans? When people come in and try to point us in a new direction, we go, get out of my way. We could even potentially do harm to them or insult them or shove them out of the way on purpose because they're in the way of my plan. What we've done actually, in essence, is put myself or some other goal in front of God. And when God gets in the way, we're gonna fight him. The opposite is true when you're following after God. What's weird about this is suddenly you find yourself as a person running after God with all your heart, running after him with all your strength, running after him and his plans And when you show up, you fight yourself. When you try to get in the way of God's plans, you go, I'm gonna gonna have to remove myself from this. I'm gonna have to deal with myself. I'm gonna have to humble myself. Oh, that's not true because that's not where God's going. How in the world would somebody want to get to the place where they're denying themselves to follow after God's position, after God's way? Well, we'll get to that. But the point is simply this. You either obey God or you disobey God. And the definition of disobedience is simply sin. And the definition of obedience is what it's speaking of here. And so there may actually be only two routes, two ways. Now, what's powerful about this then is that God is seeking for us 
or to set us free. The only way you can get out of this mess in the first place is for God to do something. If we're running after this and we know we're stuck, be it your genetics, I believe it's sin, be it you're stuck in this situation where you're running down these tracks, you've got these habits, you've got these addictions, and they're hard to break out of, you need somebody who wakes you up from your path to suddenly being somebody who's after God's path. The way that happens looks a lot like this. This is a nice little jar of Play-Doh. And what's fun about Play-Doh is no matter how hard you try to shape it in the Play-Doh bucket, it doesn't change. You ever notice that? It just goes right back to the Play-Doh shape, the bucket shape, because no matter how much you push on it, it's going to stay in the shape of the bucket. Same thing is true with sin. God may try to conform you and shape you, but as long as we're stuck in sin, staying inside, you're going to take one form. You're going to take one form. And that form ultimately leads to what the Bible says is death. But what God does is he comes along and he breaks us open. Look at this in verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. What he's saying here is, thanks be to God that you who are once slaves, you're stuck in this, you're locked down, you've been set free and now can be obedient from the heart. He literally pops you out so that now you are able to be molded. You are now able to be shaped. It's a, it's a switch, a change of heart. And the word heart does not mean like, oh, an emotional, oh, I love this heart. That's not the idea of emotional. And the heart condition was actually the way that you thought. It was the control center of the life, how the Bible understands it. Sure, you think with your brain, you make decisions up here, but you will from the heart. You will from the soul. And you really know this. You can make a decision in your head, but it's not until your heart's in it that you do anything about it. That's how we talk about it in English. And that's what he's saying. In the past, our hearts were locked in with sin. We were going with it. Our determination was our direction. And God sets us free and puts us in this place where now we're out of the mold. He's given us a heart that has become obedient to the standards, to these standards of teaching. What does that mean? What are these standards that we're looking at here? Actually, in Romans Paul is referencing one simple thing. He says, you become obedient to the standard of teaching. The standard of teaching is found where? Say it, you already know. If you're a Christian, you know it. Where is it? In the Bible. It's in the Bible. We really truly believe that this is the standard of teaching. It's from God, it's God's word, and it's taught us how we should live. And what it's saying is that when we've become moldable, this shapes us. Now, I get it. Some people um, might be thinking, hold on, Greg. Um, you really think the Bible's God's word? I mean, I get it. It's a good book and all. And that's cool. But, you know, any other religion's just as good. You probably watched enough um, History Channel or Discovery Channel to realize a lot of the teachings in the Bible can show up in a lot of other religions. But the point has been made that not all the good teaching in the Bible shows up in all the other religions. It's the best of those teachings wind up in one book. So I consider this really kind of the one-stop shop for the best of everything. You discover the best wisdom and everything in this one book. You say, I still don't believe you. Isn't that the book that endorses like genocides and, and, all, these, and all this stuff about you know, like killing and stoning kids when they're rebellious? And I mean, that's the Bible, right? I go, it's good objections. Here's the problem with the objections, first of all. And I'm not saying they're not good objections. I'm saying that we may have an issue in how we read this. 
Because it's the way that you read this is whether it shapes you or not. It's the way that you attack and, and take in this book tells you whether or not it will shape you or you're trying to shape it. I mean, let's be honest. We're Americans. We're Americans, right? We come with a particular perspective. And you know, us Americans, we've got it all figured out. Everything, right? Of course not. So why do we approach the Bible like we've got it all figured out? You see, what's interesting is when we approach the Bible from our own American perspective, we may be imposing our thinking on it and then judging it instead of letting it judge our perspectives. How do you get there, though? How do you deal with that? Well, let's, let's take, a, let's take a, just an example of how we need to show the Bible needs to be read differently than we think. Because this thing's alien, don't you agree? I mean, this thing comes from a different world. And that's the reason why a lot of us don't read it. You open it up and you're just like, I don't get what it's saying. That's so weird. What are they talking about? Fat lambs and strange cutting things. Okay, put it down. Well, that's because it comes from the 14th through up to the 1st century. 14th century BC all the way up to the first century. Let, let's just do a little thought experiment for a second. Do you know how fast information went in the 1400s BC? What's the fastest route information could travel? The answer was horse. Horseback was the fastest something could travel. You would gallop as fast as you could to bring your information delivered to the king. Okay, let's fast forward to the first century. You have the first century AD. What's the fastest information can travel? horse. Still, you send it out and see, it's going to take a long time. A guy could travel the roads on the horse much faster. So couriers always traveled by horse. Uh, Let's go to the 1400s AD. How fast could information travel? Horse. Anybody getting catching this yet? So we move up to the 18, we move up to the the 1700s, the, the 1800s. And what's the fastest things, the early 1800s, the fastest things could travel? Horse. Some people were like arguing with me. It's carrier pigeon. I'm like, that's like the Twitter of the 1800s, man. You know, a little tiny, no, what's it say? No, I'm talking about big time information travels the fastest by horse. Until really one thing comes out. A locomotive kind of sped some things up, but even then you still traveled mainly by horse to pass information. The one thing that changed it was the telegraph. That changed the entire world of communication. Now, how today, how fast does information move? The speed of light. That's one example of hundreds. Look in this room. What of in this room was even there in the first century? In the 14th century BC? Bricks. That's about it. Not the covers on the cushions, not the foam in the chairs, not the keyboards, not the clothes you're wearing. The fabrics didn't even exist. I mean, this is a radically different world that we're talking about than the one in the Bible. And when we go running to the Bible, assuming our world gets that world, you're going to end up interpreting it all wrong. You're going to think all wrong about what it's saying. Just from that one little fact, it makes you go, maybe I should be more careful when I'm looking at it. Because what you'll discover is if you understand the Bible in its world, in its context, in its place, you start finding out what it's really saying. And the scary thing is, when you find out what it's really saying, and if you're a Christian, and you know what it's really saying, you'll suddenly be like, whoa, it's saying that's bad, and I do that, and that's, but I don't do it like they did, and I do it like, oh, that's not good. And God starts to shape you. 
He starts to teach you. He starts to train you. And he starts showing you how the word actually is, is all, all along been the truth to shape our lives and move us. Yeah, it was wrapped up in a 1400 BC story. It's wrapped up in a first century AD garb. But when we take it out and we put it and we look at it without its cultural assumptions, and then we look at it from away from our cultural assumptions, we go, wow, this thing knows us and this thing wants to shape us. We've become obedient to the standards of this truth. That's why we encourage you guys to be involved in small groups, and to be involved in Bible studies. You need to be in a place where you're constantly getting the, the, the information of the Bible in a context where you can throw it off each other and learn from each other and then let somebody say, you know, I see this in you. I see this in you. And start being able to let it shape us. Because too often we can approach the Bible and just get it all wrong because we don't know what we're looking at. It's an interesting, interesting concept that Paul is putting here because then the heart has been changed. It's become obedient and able to be shaped. And so we walk into the situation. You have the choice between going after sin and letting it chain you up or you can go after God and let him change you. And I really encourage you that you should let God change you because what it leads to is the ability to live for God according to his purpose forever. But sin does the opposite. Let's, let's look at what Paul's saying again. Go, go on with me. We're looking at verse 19 now. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And I'm like, thank you. I, I agree. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting from that? from that time, from the things of which you are now ashamed. And look what he's saying. He's saying, guys, you could give yourself over to sin. That's fine. Go right ahead. Go back and give yourself back to sin. Sure, the law's not going to crush you. God's not going to disown you. You can fall into sin. You can obey it, but it's going to chain your life up into bad habits. It's going to chain your life up into death. Notice how he puts it. He says, lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. You were once presented your members. You once handed yourself over to sin to be used. What did it produce? More lawlessness. I, I think this is insightful. He's saying if you just give yourself over to a little white lie, it gives you the room and you realize God didn't crush me. So you take another step. That's just a little bigger lie, but it's not that big of a deal. Eventually you're kind of hiding, doing things, doing some more lies. Then you, you're doing your taxes and you're fudging stuff. It becomes a bigger deal. Or, or, or you're just not forgiving that person. Yeah, it's no big deal if I don't forgive that person. And then you start letting that fester and grow. And then suddenly you're not forgiving that person. You're not forgiving that person. You're not forgiving that person. All these people are wrong. And suddenly bitterness starts to grow in your heart. Because lawlessness grows into lawlessness. It develops itself. It compounds upon itself like compound interest. And it chains you up. It puts you into these situations, into these bad habits. You are slaves to sin. In fact, we can be firing off and going after our own selves again. We can say, you know what, God? Hold that thought. That's awesome. I know you want me to go over there, but I got this thing I need to do in my life. And we start running after our old lives again. We start filling in things that we used to do, and the chains start linking up, and we start getting locked down again. And the proof is in the pudding. The proof is the realization that you're going to be accumulating things that you're ashamed of. 
Notice Paul is talking about the past. He says, listen, and maybe you're not a Christian, you feel insulted by this. I want you to think about it for a second, though. In your pursuit of doing your things your way, have we not created a list of things that we wouldn't share at a cocktail party? I need to be honest, you wouldn't lead out with it. Like walk in, you're like, hey, oh, what's your name? Hi, my name's Greg. Yeah, awesome. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great, man. Man, I got to tell you this story. Like, oh, okay, what's that? I pulled the biggest lie off in my life. It was amazing. I, I went and I did all this evil. All, I went out and hang out with these guys and I did all this stuff. And then I told this person that it was just a big deal. It wasn't a big deal. I was at a charity event, all these things. And my wife, she bought a hook, line, and sinker. And they look at you like, you lied to your wife about all that stuff? And I think there'd be a sense of people kind of going, yeah, you're a really nice guy. You know, you don't lead with your, with your closet. Everybody has their stories. Everybody has their good stuff. That's what everybody leads with. Look how amazing I am. I've got my life in order. I'm going in a good direction. This is perfect. But in the back, in our closet, we have stored up thing after thing after thing you don't want to even share with your kids. You're hoping they don't find out. How am I going to explain that? Sure don't. And this, all of us have it. And all Paul is trying to do here, he says, guys, but what were you getting from those things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. The running after sin leads to death. The running after sin leads to a shameful things that lie behind you, that you have to hide and put away. And so when he's talking to the Christian, he's saying, if that's what it brought in the past, why go back to it now? Why turn it? So, you know, I got this choice between doing the sinful thing and following God. I'm going to go after the sin. He said, don't do that. Because all it does is it ends up making you all hard and crusty. This is a guy who's gotten more hard and crusty throughout the day. But the point is that what happens when you get chained up, you begin to form bad habits again. These bad habits are like this Play-Doh. It gets all kind of hard and nasty and and it's not as moldable anymore. It's not as flexible. It's not as shapeable. And it's because we've got these, these sins and these ideas we won't let go of. It's chained us up. And so when we finally turn to God and we repent, we say, God, I know that was a bad idea. I'm back. And he's like, okay, I'm not going to crush you for it, but it's going to hurt to get you malleable again. I got to pluck all this stuff off you and kind of get you loosened up. And it's called discipline. And really, the danger is we can wind up so hard and so locked down, God's done with us, it just leads to death. All the good we've done, washed away and gone. It's just not worth running back to sin, especially when you consider what God has for us. Look at what he has. This is awesome. I'm so excited about this. He says, so now, look at verse 19 at the end there. So now... Present your members, volunteer your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Whoa! Isn't that awesome? That's how I responded the first time I read it. I'm thinking, well, no, no, yeah, thanks, Paul. Oh, that's what I want to be. I want to be holy. Because you know what holy people are like. They look down on everybody else, you know. It's like holy people. They, they don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't chew. They don't go with girls who do. You know, that whole craziness. And all it is is this definition of holiness is what you're not doing. How many people have claimed I'm holy because I don't sin and I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this. And if I did that, I wouldn't be holy anymore. And holiness in the church has become this what I don't do list. I want to note something. You never actually define anything by what it isn't. 
You can only define something by what it is. So what is holiness? What is this sanctification? Sanctification just means the process of becoming holy. The only way I can really explain this, because it's important, it shows up a lot. It goes on to say that you have now been set free from sin. You become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and it's in eternal life, and that's supposed to be positive. And all of us go, that's kind of crusty. You got the wrong image. This is, this is the crusty holy guy. Crusty people are holy. That's not what it means. Holiness is an interesting concept. If you go back with me, back, back, back in time. And we, you and I, walked out of this room into the deserts of the, of the, of the Sinai. And we're standing there staring at the tabernacle that the Hebrews had made. You would walk out and you would see this beautiful tent that had been blinged out like crazy. Because it's got gold and stuff all over the place. And you're like, whoa, that's a tent. You want to go check out this amazing tent. You walk up to it and these guys show up at the front of the tent. They go, you can't come in here or we're going to kill you. And you're like, religious fanatics, you know. Because we Americans, nothing is sacred in a sense. And, they would, and you'd find out you weren't allowed in. Not because... You had sin, but because you weren't set apart for it. And part of that process was removing sin from you, being covered by a sacrifice. But these men alone, out of all the rest of the tribes, had been selected. They were called the Levites. They were consecrated. And only one of them was consecrated another time, set apart for a different reason, to go into this tent that God had set apart for himself. See, all the word holy means is to be set apart. For the purpose of God using you. The tent is nothing if God didn't use it. God didn't set apart the tent just to have it sit there. Look, I've got a tent. No, he used it. He used it as his place to atone for sin. He used the priests to be people who could interact with people and God. He used Israel and set them apart to use them as the people of God. When God sets something apart and makes it holy, it's because he intends to use it. So catch this. Whenever you're running after God and you're obeying his word and you're doing what he told you to do, you're not going to sin. Because you're doing what he told you to do. That's why you're holy. You don't sin because you're doing what God intended you to do. And the point is holiness is about God's activity. It's about God leading you, letting God change you, leads you to live out God's purpose. He takes you and he starts shaping you. And through the word of God, as it starts molding you, you start realizing I'm becoming more and more and more and more like a real human. I'm making decisions that I'm not ashamed of. I don't have this list of things I'm ashamed of. In fact, these things are oftentimes things that I'm very, I'm excited about and other people get proud of me about. And I don't mean to be proud. I kind of like, I don't talk about that. I I did that because I wanted to. And God starts to continue to shape us and change us in something that's called character. You see, where sin builds habits, things you just fail, you just fall into, you just do it without thinking. Character is something based from the choice and of who you are. And as God shapes you, you design, you, you become more and more like him and you become more and more with his character to where you're able to make the right choices, make the right decisions, because you're gaining it from the word of God. And you're being shaped. And the more you're used by God, the more you are being sanctified, being made holy, being set apart to be used by him. We just call this becoming a passionate Christ follower at Olive Branch. 
If you want to be a passionate Christ follower, it's somebody who obeys the word of God, gets in it, knows God from the word, follows after him, and as they obey, God just keeps using them and keeps using them and keeps using them. And soon, they know where God's leading them and called them to, and they long to do it, and they launch after it, and they trust God where he's called them to, and they are living. Now, they're not perfectly sinless. I'm not saying that. But you're not running after sin. And God continually shapes us and changes and challenges our hearts as we develop and are shaped by the word of God. Who wants to run back to death? Who wants to run back to crusty old habits that cause us guilt and shame when you could enjoy the opportunity to be used by God regularly over and over and over to do the good and the important things that he's called us to do? To write music for his glory. To care for people because he's called us to do it. To build culture because he's called us to do it. To speak of justice because he's called us to do it. To tell of his gospel because he's called us to do it. To go to the nations because he's called us to do it. To enjoy good friends and good company because he's called us to do it. To give and help and aid and do all the things that we get to do because he's called us to do it. That's a radically different life. And when you just tie the idea of eternal life onto that, you get to do what God's designed you to do. He knows who you really are and he's made, given you a purpose versus you trying to figure it out for yourself. It's a different orientation of life. Well, yeah, I don't have to be punished by the law, so what? Why not run after what God has given you? The basic question for us is this. We've been kind of asking a derivative of this. We'll ask it throughout the series. God, what's the one thing... I know I need to do that I'm putting off. All of us are putting off something. All of us are putting aside something that you know you should do, something good, something right, somebody maybe you need to forgive, somebody maybe you need to make a reconciliation with, somebody that you know you need to, something that you know you need to stop doing and something else you need to start doing. Maybe there's a time in the word that you said, I know I need to do this, a time of prayer, I know I need to talk. And Whatever it is, you and God know this one thing that you're putting off. And what I want to challenge you to do is ask God what that is. And this week, begin to do it. Don't give in to the sin any longer. Don't give yourself into your route and your way, but allow God to develop you and point you in the direction of what he is calling you to do. It's not an easy challenge, but I hope that you'll take it. Would you bow your heads with me? Tonight, we've been um, discussing this concept of running after sin or running after God. Of letting a vision of sin in our life cover our needs or allowing God to cover the true needs and lead us into who we truly are to be. And I don't know where you're at tonight, but maybe tonight you've been listening to this and your list of things that you're ashamed of, those things in sin are just huge. Maybe you're uncomfortable even thinking about that, but right now, God's bringing them to your mind. And he's saying, hey, it's time to deal with these things. And if you don't deal with those things, one day we will deal with them at the judgment day. But God wants to deal with those now so that you don't have to face the payment for those shameful things that we hide away. Rather, he wants to let you know something. He's got a gift for you. According to this last verse, it says that the wages of sin, the wages of those shameful things is death. 
But God has a free gift of eternal life that he's handing out through Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ did is he came and he bore our sins. He bore those shameful things upon himself to pay for them completely. And all the ones we will do in the future to pay for them absolutely and to give a gift of freedom from sin and a gift of a right relationship with God. And that gives you this chance through Jesus right now to have your relationship with God fixed and your sin dealt with. And maybe now that's what you need to do. Tonight, you need to ask God to forgive you your sins. You need to ask God to fix your relationship with him so you can stop running after these things that are causing you so much destruction and shame and start running after God and his vision that he's always had for you, the purpose that you're here for. That begins by receiving his gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And if that's where you're at tonight and you'd like to receive that, Right now, would you just raise your hand? I want to give you that chance to say, yes, I want, to, I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to receive that. Amen. Just right now, just saying to yourself, God, I, I, I need that if that's you. Just pray this prayer with me. If the prayer doesn't save or, or change anything, it's just your conversation with God. It's your trust in his promise. That does the work. This is just a way for you to speak to me. Say, God in heaven, I know that I've sinned. And I ask that you'd forgive me. I trust that Jesus took and paid for my sins so that you can make my relationship right with you. I trust that you fixed that relationship. And I ask that you would point me forward so I could follow you for who you have me to be. I trust you in Jesus' name, amen.